Turn with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to Exodus 32, where you can also find it printed in your bulletin. Remember the scene, uh, God has been speaking with Moses on the mount, and this is what is going on down below. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, 
what did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate through the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Our God, as we come to your word, we need the understanding of your Holy Spirit to open hearts and minds, unstop our ears, and change us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Prototypes and archetypes. Prototype, archetype. What is the difference? I'm a victim of uh, every retailer and neighborhood at this time of year. As you walk into a store, there's a bunch of Halloween decor and decorations. And I was reminded that in uh, 1818, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. And Shelley's character, Dr. Victor Frankenstein, uh, she created such a unique character, he established the archetype of the mad scientist, uh, the one who is uh, obsessive and eccentric and would cross moral and ethical boundaries to accomplish success. And all stories, I should say, yeah, all stories have these kind of archetypes, the mad scientist. You have the archetypal hero, the archetypal damsel in distress or sidekick. Uh, they are a pattern or an ideal from which other characters are derived. Uh, that is an archetype. As distinct from a prototype. A prototype is an early version of something that would get refined later on. So if you've ever seen uh, the first cell phone, 
that prototype, it looks like a, a World War II radio. You know, it's a huge, giant brick on the side of someone's face. There are prototypes that get refined later on. Uh, why are we talking about this? Prototypes and archetypes. Because we have both in our passage today. We have prototypes of sin that really, I would say, are early versions of our sin that has become more refined. If, dare I say, we've gotten better at it, unfortunately, and it's become developed uh, beyond even what we see here. So we have prototypes of sin in our passage as our sin has advanced. But we also have such a unique character in Moses, and he has unique statements of intercession and atonement that the passage screams to us, look at the archetype from whom Moses is derived. Look at the Savior. And there's, Jesus is not just, you know, drawing from an amorphous Savior archetype. Jesus is the archetype. He is the ideal. He is the perfect pattern from whom all of these other little smaller patterns like Moses are derived. And so it's important for us to understand this because this event in redemptive history, the golden calf and Moses going between God and the people is telling us to look at our sin and telling us to look at the archetype that is Jesus. Look at the one that Moses is patterned after. So I want you to see that our sin problem needs Christ's atonement and intercession. Just like what the people experienced here needed Moses' intercession and atonement, our sin needs Christ's atonement and intercession. The first thing we have in our passage is the sin problem. Uh, What's the problem? People see that Moses is delayed and they say, Aaron, give us gods of gold to go before us. And Aaron complies and builds them a golden calf uh, to use in worshiping Yahweh. Give us a representation of the Lord, of Yahweh, to lead us from here. Other places in Scripture describe this as a habit that the people had in Egypt. It continued when they got out of Egypt, and it continued later on. Give us a representation that we can bow down to of the Lord, of Yahweh. Uh, Notice Aaron says, tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh, the the capital L-O-R-D. They aren't, as far as we can tell, trying to turn to another God as much as give us a representation that we can see of who brought us out of Egypt. Oh yes, this calf, this is the representation of, of Yahweh. Side note, this is one of several passages that support the idea of not using images in worship. Why is our sanctuary relatively plain and there aren't statues and icons here and there? Exodus 32 is one of the primary passages. We don't assist our worship with images. And it's dangerous, we believe, to have them, you know, in a place like this where we're worshiping the Lord, even if we weren't bowing directly down before a statue. So 
one obvious and, but, but side application there. But the other thing I want us to see is this, again, is a prototype. It is a picture of our sin. The first thing is the turning to another when there is delay. Moses, what, has, what, has, what is the impetus for them turning their hearts? Moses, we think you're taking longer than you should. We don't know what happened to you. Where are you? When we lose confidence in God and his timing, that he is still with us, that he's at work, we reach out and grasp at something else. I don't, I'm not sure what's really going on here. I don't have confidence. And so I am grasping out, maybe it's a sinful vice. Maybe it's someone else. Maybe it's like reaching within yourself for your own gumption to get whatever done needs to be done because I'm not sure if God's going to do it. We have this exact same tendency. Matthew Henry, I love his commenting on this passage. He paints with a broad brush, uh, but this brush was exactly the right color, uh, I felt, when he said this. Weariness in waiting betrays to many temptations. Weariness in waiting betrays to many temptations. And so we should ask ourselves, what are the areas of lack of confidence or seeming delay in God doing something and how am I tempted in those circumstances or right now? What am I reaching out to? Who am I reaching out to? Uh, to where am I diverting my trust? Because God seems to be taking longer than I feel like he should. That's what starts in their heart here. The other thing I want us to see, as I mentioned that this is a representation, tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. This is under the guise, this is under the facade of being unto the Lord. And I want us to ask ourselves and to beware of our idols that are under the surface, that are under the guise of being unto the Lord. What do I mean by this? Um, Let's take preaching, for example. I'll point the finger at myself here. Preaching is a service unto the Lord for the people of God. But what can happen here under the surface? Oh, I really want to please people. I hope they say it. I hope they think it's great. I hope someone tells me that. I'm afraid if I mess up. All of these things, Josh is smiling because he knows it. I was describing you, not me. No. <laughs> if it's here, it's everywhere. Your work, your labor, you are providing for your family, you're working hard, you are putting food on the table. But what's underneath? I really love money and I want more of it. Maybe in a sport, uh, you're doing it unto the Lord. God has gifted you with this ability. You're performing on the field. You acknowledge him for it, but what's underneath? I hope everybody sees how awesome I am. And tells me it. Or even at home. You know, I am parenting my children as unto the Lord. You are disciplining them. You are training them. You're teaching them. But what can be under the surface? I'm losing control 
and I want to keep it. And whenever they get out of control, the parenting under the Lord becomes my hands that are grasping at the control that I'm losing upon them. Now, I'm not saying that you and I have like these thoughts continually and that our, our actions and our labors are all characterized by this all the time. But I bring it up to say we should be honest with ourselves about these things and beware of the insidiousness of sin and how we can so easily vacillate and drift from what is an honorable position or what is a good and godly position into that idolatry under the surface. Feast unto the Lord, but there's a golden calf underneath. What do we have next? We see not only the people's sin, but we see Aaron's compliance. Uh, He gives in and says, okay, fine, everybody, get all the gold from everybody's earrings and jewelry, all the loot that we took out of Egypt, melt it all down, and I'll craft something. There is some sort of sinful irony here as chapter 31 is here are these individuals that I've gifted with talent in building and crafting and designing uh, the sanctuary. That's what Moses is hearing up on the mountain. And down below, build us something. And Aaron uses his craftsmanship, his design abilities to build the golden calf. Some sort of sinful, poetic uh, terribleness there, I see. But I watched a, a YouTube video of a sculpting improvisation. And this lady just had a giant lump of clay. And there was a chamber orchestra that was playing. And she just started to work and seemed to have an idea. And then a face was developed. And there were some flowers and like a little cornucopia thing. It ended up being a beautiful uh, sculpture of a face that had other flowers and smaller, you could maybe call them cherubs or something, faces on it. But she started just from a blank lump. And I, I think something like that happened here with Aaron. Okay, let's melt it down, and Aaron starts to fashion and craft, and maybe he had an idea, and Aaron's design improv ends up with this representation, the golden calf. Uh, Matthew Henry here said it again really well of Aaron. Never did any man, never did any wise man make a more frivolous and foolish excuse than that of Aaron. Moses comes down and says, Aaron, what did the people do to you? What did the people say to make you do this? And Aaron's like, well, you know how, you know, forceful, you know how their heart is set on evil, and they said this, and, and so I did it. He felt pressure, and so he did it. Other theologians have said it, but it goes like this. Sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. And it happened to Aaron, and it happens to us whenever we feel pressure and we compromise. And so I want us to see in Aaron a prototype of our sin as well. As we see what happened to him and what he did, see that sinful pressure, sinful pressure, tempts us to be cowardly to choose the foolish thing and then we're tempted to blame shift well you know it's the people's fault they pressured me and out came this calf one of the most 
humorous lines in Scripture. I started working and poop, out, out came this calf. Um, ask yourself, whatever this thing is that I'm doing, what is this thing that I am doing and why am I doing it? Is it because, I've, is it because I am feeling a good and godly exhortation from the Lord or from somebody else to do this thing? Or is it because I'm feeling pressure? Pressure that someone else is sinfully putting on me or sinful pressure that I'm putting on myself? We do this in the church often. Whether, someone, whether you do it to somebody else or whether you don't do it at all, you do it to yourself. Hey, would you be able to participate in X? Would you be able to do X? And you feel this pressure. Now, there might be a, again, there could be a good feeling of uh, I'm being, you know, prompted by the Spirit to participate. I can do this. The answer is yes. But beware of the temptations that you have in saying yes because you want to please people. In saying yes because you want to be seen, whatever the case might be. It can also happen on the flip side. Uh, Saying no to things because your life is filled up with saying yes to all the other idols. I have to say no to this good thing. Now, we should say no. We have to say no to things. Totally get it. But let's examine ourselves and ask why. Am I saying no to this thing because I've filled my life up with saying yes to all these other idols, whatever they are? Let's ask ourselves why we're doing what we're doing just as we look at why Aaron was doing what he was doing the sinful pressure that led to a foolish choice. What is the response from God? The response from God is judgment and chastening. Look, Moses, go down from here, leave me alone so I can consume all the people and I'll just make a nation of you. I'll, I'll do what I did with Noah, basically. I'm going to consume them all and I'll just, and I'll just use you. God pronounces judgment. Um, And again, in verse 33, he says, The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out. There is judgment for sin. And we have the character of Moses, not only as intercessor and atoner, we'll we'll get to that in a bit, but also as a judge uh, that goes between God and the people. The image I got here is, uh, you know, at the... Before the Industrial Revolution, you know, you had a, a, a workplace, a, a floor of workers, say they're, say they're sewing or they're writing, whatever. The, the boss is in an office above, and there's all these workers on the floor at the table working at whatever it is. Call it 17th or 18th century. So the boss is above, and he is benevolent. He's kind. He provides for his workers. But the workers on the floor there is a mutiny. There's an uprising. They're, they're destroying things. And Moses is like the floor manager who says, well, the boss is saying, all right, that's it. I'm firing them all. Get them out of here. But Moses is like the floor manager that says, well, hold on, God. Hold on, boss. Let me go down to the floor. Let me go down to the floor and handle some things. Moses goes down to the floor. He goes down from the mountain and takes care of business, smashes 
the tablets at the foot of the mountain, grind, melts the calf, grinds it up, and has the people drink the powder-laden water. I, uh, sometimes we have moments of levity in the youth group. Uh, we watch videos that might be slightly less than educational, but are nevertheless entertaining. And so this last week, uh, we watched a marketing, well, it was an advertisement, so this advertisement for the Blendtec Blender. Uh, so there's a series of videos in which the owner of the company, I think he's the owner of the company, he has a series called Will It Blend? And so the Will It Blend series is he takes a Blendtec Blender, and it's a marketing thing to show how awesome it is, and he's like, the new iPhone 12 came out. Will it blend? You know, and he sticks it and it blends the iPhone. He says, they blend phones, keyboards, iPads. One time he blended Justin Bieber's career. Uh, there were dolls and CDs and everything in the Blendtec blender. But every time he would blend it, it always blends. That's, that's why it's good marketing. Every time he would blend it, eventually all of the stuff breaks up and it just would turn into this black powder. And he would open up the lid and just this, you could tell just what had to be like poison plastic powder fume just like kind of poofed out the top. And he'd dump it down on the table. It's like, it blends. That, imagine taking that and dispersing it in water and then being made to drink it. That's what happens here. Not only that, he has the Levites go through and kill all those who are opposed to Yahweh, those who have been worshiping in this way. All right, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the Levites gather around him. Now, we don't, we don't think that it was only the Levites who were on Yahweh's side, but this is a representation of their duty, representation of their duty to protect the worship of God. That's part of the reason why after they do their duty in killing the idolaters, Moses says, you've been consecrated for service to the Lord. This is like a picture of their duty in defending God's worship. That's why we see that here in this passage. The other judgment that we see is that the Lord smote the people. Verse 35 Then the Lord sent a plague, or you could say, and the Lord smote the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. 3,000 men were slain by the Levites. You You also have some sort of judgment here upon the people in general, the people who contributed their gold. The, the people who helped Aaron, uh, the, the people who were reveling that you know, weren't the men that were opposed to Yahweh. So you have this picture of judgment on the people. As we consider this image, uh, I find it's the, the image of being made to drink the ground-up golden calf as peculiar, powerful, and uh, a representation of what we do to ourselves in our sin. We imbibe its consequences. It is 
in us. It is a part of us, and it is God's judgment is upon us for it. Imagine blending up a representation of your idol. Whatever it is, I'll, let's pick a few. Take a wad of money and blending it up and pouring it in water and drinking it. A football, blending it up, pouring it in water and then drinking it. A phone, blend up a phone, pour it in water and then drink it. Doesn't it, it sounds disgusting, right? Ugh. That's the image of what we do to ourselves when we sin. And we do it in a much more real and harmful way than simply ingesting you know, gold or a phone or whatever it is dispersed in a drink. And this isn't just creative discipline from Moses. Haha, it's been so bad, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grind this up and make him drink it. It's not just creative discipline. Again, this is a picture of God's judgment on sin overall. God says this in Jeremiah 25, thus the, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. What Moses does here is a picture of the cup of the wine of the wrath of God that the nations, that all of us, must drink. Sounds disgusting. The cup of the wine of wrath must be consumed. Now I ask you, who will drink it? Who will drink the cup of the wine of the wrath of God? And this picture here should then drive us forward to Christ's words. My soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Christ himself is the one who takes the cup of the wine of the wrath of God that was for our consumption, and he takes it in himself. And so we see Moses in this passage that, that drives us to Christ, and we see in this passage not just our sin problem and not just the results of it in judgment and chastisement on the people, but we see Moses as an intercessor and a toner that points us forward to Christ. Moses says, Lord, turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You, you made a promise, Lord. Please remember that and be merciful. Remember what you said that you would give the offspring of Abraham. And what does Christ say essentially? I am the offspring of Abraham. Lord, you have made a promise to me that I will inherit a people. Lord, be merciful because I drink the cup for my people that I will inherit. Christ intercedes. Moses says in verse 30, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Lord, blot me out of your book instead. Now, Moses can't die for the sins of the people, but that attitude, that expression, is a Christ-like expression. Blot me out instead. 
And we see Moses and his intercession and atonement driving us forward to look at the characteristics of Christ, who in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, to be the wrath bearer, to be the cup drinker, to be the one blotted out for our sins. And there, there is a relenting and mercy here in this passage. But the feeling that I get as I read through this passage, I don't know if you get this feeling, is there's still unresolved tension. It's like temporary resolution. What Moses is doing works for a while, but it's like not enough. Moses is like the levees at New Orleans for Hurricane Katrina. He can hold for a while, but eventually those levees are going to burst and break. And if you remember, a levee is a steep slope of dirt or concrete that tries to partially divert a river or a body of water. Moses can like, there's like a picture of partially doing it here. But Christ, Christ is like the supernatural levee who doesn't just partially divert the water. He wholly and totally diverts the wrath of God onto himself. He doesn't extinguish it. He takes it. It is executed upon him. It's a reminder that as we come to the table, I hadn't had this thought until looking through this passage, that as we drink of the cup that represents Christ's blood, we commune with him. We are communing with him, but we get to commune in eating and drinking with him because he consumed the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. It brings new light as we think about imbibing sin and it being in us and needing to be taken upon Christ. The idea that Christ, he who knew no sin, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thomas Edison, uh, at one point in his history, was working on storing electricity. So Thomas Edison is working on batteries And one of his associates named Walter Mallory uh, visits him. He comes in and he sees Edison at this table. He says that this is is in an article, maybe in an interview from like 1910 or so. I can't remember exactly. But in this article, Walter Mallory is describing what he sees as he goes in and sees Thomas Edison at this three-foot-wide by 15-foot-long table, just full of battery test cells all over the place failing again and again and again. And Walter says to Edison, isn't it a shame that with the tremendous amount of work you have done, you haven't been able to get any results? And Edison says, results? Why, man, I've gotten a lot of results. I know several thousand things that won't work. Well, God isn't failing to build a Savior or to bring one into history. But he is, just like Edison, having a table full of batteries. I'm sure he had a table full of light bulbs when he was trying to find the right filament that would burn efficiently. Scripture is strewn with 
prototypes of Christ. But there's only one that works. There's only one light bulb that worked. There was only one filament that Edison used that was like, yes, that one burns efficiently. That's the one that works. All of these pictures, the people point to our sin. Moses points us to Christ. And so let these patterns and shadows not just let us end up looking at our sin, but let them drive us to look at the archetype that is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word, for redemptive history, um, where we see people who are just like us and a Savior that we need. Lord, help us, we pray, to root out and identify and be honest about the idols in our hearts, but to turn and look to Jesus, who is our bearer, our intercessor, the one who changes us by his spirit. In his name we pray, amen.